diabetic ketoacidosis, or DKA, is one of the most feared complications of type 1 diabetes. That's why researchers are looking for new and innovative ways to increase awareness of what DKA is and how it can be prevented. I'm Krista Lamb, and today on the Diabetes Canada podcast, I'll be talking to Dr. Bruce Perkins about his Diabetes Canada-funded research to develop a tool to reduce the risk of DKA as well as about some exciting new advances in type 1 diabetes technology. Dr. Perkins is a professor at the University of Toronto and the director of the Leadership Sinai Center for Diabetes at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto. On another note, today is my last episode as the producer and host of the Diabetes Canada podcast. This role has been an incredible one and a true joy. I have met so many amazing people. I've told wonderful stories. And I hope I've helped some of you learn just a little bit more about topics related to diabetes. While I'll miss the awesome team I work with on the show and all of our phenomenal listeners, I'm excited to have time for new adventures. The show will be continuing, so be sure to stay subscribed to hear even more wonderful interviews and stories from Diabetes Canada. And now, let's chat with Dr. Perkins, who, in addition to being my last interview on the show, was also the first researcher brave enough to say yes when I asked him to be on the podcast back in 2017 when we first started. So welcome to the show, Dr. Perkins. It is lovely to have you back again. Thanks so much, Krista. So first things first, I'm going to get you to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. So I'm Bruce Perkins. I'm a clinician scientist at the University of Toronto. I do research in type 1 diabetes, I live with type 1 diabetes, and I direct the Leadership Sinai Center for Diabetes. So that is a whole lot of stuff and it's really amazing. And we're going to talk a little bit first about a project that you're doing for Diabetes Canada because we've been talking to a lot of the funded researchers this season about their projects and what you're doing for this particular one, which I understand is about DKA. That's right. So, diabetic ketoacidosis, that's the focus of this project. Maybe I'll give you a little bit of a backstory. Years ago, we did a podcast, and I talked about my research in this class of drugs called SGLT inhibitors, sodium glucose-linked transporter inhibitors, which uh, are these transformative drugs in people with type 2 diabetes for blood sugar control. And now we've learned have amazing levels of like kidney protection, heart protection, protection from heart failure. They're approved for people with type 2 diabetes and also approved for people without diabetes. Me and a colleague years ago, David Cherney, we did a study to understand how these actually work on the kidneys. And we found a mechanism that shows how they protect heart and kidneys. We chose to study this in people with type 1 diabetes because that's the model that he used to look at kidney function. And uh, we found that the people on this medication just loved being on it, had great blood sugar control improvements, they had better weight control, they had better blood pressure control, and like quite literally, at the end of the study, they didn't want to come off of these medications. So unfortunately, you know, we went forward to study these in huge multi-center international studies, like in thousands of people with type 1 diabetes, and they did show those same benefits but they're associated with an increased risk of diabetic ketoacidosis. So that's where I started understanding that people with type 1 diabetes all have risk of DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis, but most of us with diabetes don't even really understand what on earth it is. 
what to do about it, why it's important. And because of that, it means it's tougher to introduce a therapy that could have all kinds of amazing benefits, like those medications, SGLT inhibitors, if they're going to increase the risk for something that we don't have a good handle on to begin with. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think that the first thing I'll ask, though, is what is DKA? For the people who are listening who might not be familiar, I think most people with type 1 will know automatically what DKA is, or I hope they will, but a lot of people listening might not. Yeah, I think most people don't, even with type 1 diabetes, don't really understand what it is. So diabetic ketoacidosis, it's a situation where we have either way too little insulin in our blood, or we have so many counterinsulin hormones, like stress hormones in the setting of an illness, that the insulin that's in our blood is not working very well. So it's either a total lack of insulin or a lack of its action. When that happens, blood sugars tend to go up, fine. But sugars go up with all kinds of things. I eat a donut, my sugar goes way too high. But in diabetic ketoacidosis, not only does the sugar go high, but fat starts to break down at an accelerated rate. It forms these things called ketones, which are actually a really healthy source of energy. You know, people without diabetes, when they fast, they make more ketones. You've heard of ketogenic diets. It's just that when you have such a lack of insulin or insulin effect, it's not like you just make a bit of ketones, you make tons of them. So even though they're a healthy nutrient for our brain and our heart, they also acidify the blood and they can kill you simply because of that. They are an acid in small quantities. Our body loves them. In large quantities, it kills us. So someone with type 1 diabetes has to be able to identify when the sugars are just high compared to when they're high and overproducing ketones and getting sick from that or in the setting of another illness. So does that make sense? That's what diabetic ketoacidosis is. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that makes a lot of sense. And so my question for you then becomes, what is this project that you're working on going to do to help people to better understand DKA or know if they're experiencing DKA or at risk, I suppose, if you're experiencing it, then you probably have a problem. Yeah. So to start with, it's about five to seven people out of every 100 who every year get into DKA and are hospitalized and really sick from it. That's too much to even begin with. So we want to make sure that we are figuring out ways to prevent that excess of DKA. We want to stop this because even though it's fairly common, most people don't, really don't understand that it's a risk for them. In this project, what we're doing, our ultimate goal is to get rid of DKA. And we're doing it in kind of three logical steps. The first is to better understand the real risk factors for diabetic ketoacidosis. There's a whole bunch of studies that have uh, implied there are certain risk factors, like women are at greater risk, for example, pump users, those people who are lower in weight, who are on lower insulin doses, and then those who are struggling with blood sugar control or diabetes management. So it includes people who are struggling for whatever reason it might be lower socioeconomic status, less understanding about diabetes. But we're using data that's 40-year data from this study called the DCCT EDICT study, the Diabetes Control and Complications Trial. And we can use much more clever techniques to look at risk factors. And so far, we've learned two additional key things. People who get a heart attack or a stroke and people who get a foot complication, like an amputation or a diabetic foot ulcer, they have like some of the highest rates afterwards of going into DKA. 
We don't exactly know why, but we think it has to do with kind of getting sort of sad about diabetes and giving up a little bit. You know, people fear a foot amputation. People with diabetes fear that more than death itself. So you can imagine when it actually happens, we might, our behaviors might not be ideal or we're just really sad and give up a little bit. So we think it's really important that we understand those risk factors. Someone in that situation with a foot ulcer or an amputation or a heart attack or a stroke, that's a time to kind of get more education around DKA and also help get the right insulin regimen, the right amount of basal insulin to help suppress ketones. So that's our first project. The second, that study I was talking about, the international study on SGLT inhibitors, I led that study actually. And in the study, everyone, whether they got placebo or the active drug, were checking a few finger stick ketones each week. And so we've done this kind of crazy analysis where we see the values of those ketones, even at baseline or months before DKA can help predict who's gonna go into DKA and who's not. So those with higher normal levels of ketones, and we have a certain threshold that looks like it identifies that risk, predicts who's gonna go and get DKA later. So why not, if we're all supposed to have these ketone test strips to test on sick days when we're feeling unwell and our sugars are high, they always expire. You know, we buy 10 at a time and we use one or two of them or none. Why not use some of them like once a week for a month to get a sense of where our ketones are to see whether we're at greater risk if so, we can have more education around DKA, and secondly, we can kind of optimize the dose of basal insulin. And we looked at this also in the people who are getting the SGLT inhibitors to see if those thresholds are different. It turns out they're not for the ketone level that predicts who's going to get DKA later. So that was a second step. So we were learning a lot about uh, diabetic ketoacidosis and risk factors and how to kind of identify who's at greater risk. And the reason, I'll, sorry, one thing to add, Krista, the um, finger stick ketones, the reason that's so important is because we're about to have a new technology. It's actually available in certain parts of the world, which is a continuous ketone meter. It's like a continuous glucose sensor, but also has ketones. And we'll have them at some point in the next year or so, or a couple years, I think, in North America. And so we're going to be able to make use of that data as well. And we hope that people have access to them and that it doesn't increase the expense of a glucose sensor that much. We'll see. So the final project is called an implementation science project where we're taking people living with diabetes and their care providers and their health care providers, getting them all together to identify what the real barriers and behaviors are around why people still get DKA and going to generate an educational tool. Now that tool makes it sound like it's a device. It's not. This tool is probably going to be like an education tool, like a one-page summary of what are the key things to understand about what DKA is, who's at the greatest risk, and what can we do about it. So I imagine, but we'll see from this whole project, I imagine it being like an infographic infographic that maybe brilliant people like you can figure out how to get it really out there. Maybe an app can be made from it to help guide people when they're, let's say, struggling with a sick day. That's the idea that we're going to co-create with people living with diabetes and healthcare providers a new education tool or set of instructions, protocols around what to do to prevent DKA that we think will be better than what's available now. Because what's available now I can see it has the right spirit, but it wasn't developed by people living with diabetes, so no one really understands it. And when, when a sick day comes along, people kind of forget it. 
I forget the key principles of it. We're hoping that we can magically, by working with people living with diabetes, create a much, much better tool. Yeah, I think that always when you're working with people who live with the condition, you get a better sense of what it is that they actually want and need. So I think that'll be really wonderful. And I would be remiss if I had you here and I didn't ask you about some of the other things that are happening in type one right now, because we've had you on the show a few times now, and everyone is always really excited to hear what you have to say about some of the new technology. So you've talked about SGLTIs before. And I know that people listening would love to know a little bit more about new devices and things that are coming out that sure. you're excited about. Yeah, maybe I'll just make one comment about SGLT inhibitors. The first thing is they're not approved in Canada or North America. They are approved for type 1 diabetes in certain countries. Uh, but I just want to be clear, they're not approved here. But we are going to be doing a large scale across North America and Denmark, a study of SGLT inhibitors in people with type 1 who have kidney disease because there aren't great options for people with kidney disease. And in people with type two, these have an amazing protection. Like they really do help protect kidneys from continuing to fail. And so we're actually working with the FDA in the US. They want us to see if this study works out well, that there would be a new label indication for people with type one. And the idea is that even though there's a risk of diabetic ketoacidosis, here the risk benefit is more favorable because someone who's living with kidney disease has big risk of bad outcomes. So it's worth taking the little risk with TKA. I'll just mention that. Around devices, yeah, there's a lot going on. In my lab and in my collaborations, we're focusing on ways that can help an automated insulin delivery algorithm, so the programming within a pump and a sensor, uh, work better with the help of drugs like sodium glucose-linked transporter inhibitors. Just looks like they make the algorithm work better. And we're testing lower and lower doses that can help with that blood sugar control, but maybe not increase that risk of diabetic ketoacidosis. Uh, so that's a big part of it. I'll tell you that groups around the world are looking at other drugs for type 2 diabetes, the GLP-1 receptor agonists, these like things called dual and even triple agonists, uh, which work similarly. I think a big thing to comment on in Canada right now is this sort of like general acceptance in clinical practice around the uh, open source or do-it-yourself automated insulin delivery systems. Uh, Diabetes Canada has a guidance on this and also a user's guide to help clinicians just have more familiarity with them. I think this is amazing because without needing or having regulatory approval for each new feature, changes can happen a lot more quickly. And actually, the commercialized devices that do get approval by regulators like Health Canada, it pushes them to be clever on how to move their technology uh, forward as quickly as possible. So to me, those are kind of the big domains in devices. Yeah, and we had Ahmed Haider on the podcast a few weeks ago talking about some of the studies that he's doing, some of which you're doing with him, about various projects in technologies. So anyone who is interested can take a listen to that. I know you're also doing stuff in stem cells, and we've had people on like Bruce Brashear recently to talk about that. So, so many things. It's a really exciting time, I find, in diabetes right now. I don't know if you agree, but there's so many things even from five years ago that seem to be on the forefront. It's been an exciting time for diabetes in my whole career, which now spans a couple decades. But particularly now for type 1 diabetes, it's really exciting. A drug that can prevent the new onset of type 1 diabetes has been approved in the U.S. and will likely be approved here. 
drugs that can help treat and preserve insulin production at new onset are being evaluated and we've got great trial results around that as well. You know, the outlook for someone with who's sitting in that hospital room with a new diagnosis of type 1, I think, is, is much better. And then the um, cell-based therapies, like you mentioned, Bruce Fisher's uh, work and the fact that we're now doing actual clinical trials and we have, like, really cool results. It's a very exciting time. Yeah, it is. Uh, it has been really fascinating the last few years. And for me, this is kind of the end of my run with this particular project because I've been doing the Diabetes Canada podcast since 2017. You were my first researcher, so it's really fitting to me that you're also my last researcher on the show. So I'm going to be moving on to other things. But I wanted to know as I move forward, what advice would you have for me as someone who came into this diabetes field doing absolutely nothing and then basically bothered all of you for uh, the last six or seven years? Well, I don't think it's about us giving you advice, it's about you giving us advice. But, you know, my advice to anyone who would want to follow in your footsteps is just get immersed in it. Be exactly like you. Don't be afraid to speak to the key people. Like, they all want a microphone and a voice to speak about the things that they're passionate about. And you gave that to them. So, you know, know a lot about your area of interest, get into all the details as you have, but just be that person that actually everyone in Canada or beyond knows, like people know your name. So I'm curious, if this is the end of Diabetes Canada podcast run by Krista Lamb, what's the next step for Krista Lamb? <laughs> well, I'm not 100% sure yet, but I'm definitely looking at how I can really help the next generation of scientists learn to tell their stories because the one thing I've learned doing this over the last few years is that you know over 150 episodes I've had people who are amazing communicators and I've had people who definitely were a little rough around the edges or a little nervous so I thought I really want to put my skill set into helping train that next generation so there's definitely going to still be more podcasts there's going to be a whole new project that will be coming out and I'm really excited to let people know when it's ready that uh, I will be not just doing diabetes but all sorts of healthcare and science and making sure that the rest of the world can be as excited hopefully maybe a smidge as excited as I am about this work. That's amazing that sounds amazing well of these 150 podcasts there's probably a lot of like content to learn about to go back and listen to these but Maybe for someone who wants to be a great communicator, it's like these 150 podcasts are like case studies and how to communicate well. Like what are the ones that went really well and what are the ones that didn't and we can all learn from that. Yeah, absolutely. I always tell people about the first one we did because when I showed up, none of my equipment worked and I did it on my iPhone. If any of you are wondering why the audio is so bad on the first episode, that Edmonton, right? Was it in Edmonton? No, that was at your office. Oh, seriously? Yeah, and they set me up with all this equipment, none of which worked when I got there. <laughs> but you know what? Now, as you can see, we have a lot more options. and uh... Yeah, the audience should know there's a lot of technical equipment <laughs> set up here. It's very cool. I'm a little jealous. We've come a long way from uh, recording on my iPhone, although I will say that the iPhone is still being utilized because now I have a fear of uh, failure. But um, no, I think it's really important. And there are so many episodes that were so wonderful. And so many times where I talked to researchers for the very first time that they've ever been on a podcast or ever been interviewed for something like this. And, you know, it's really lovely to have them come back and say, oh, that was really easy, or I really enjoyed that. And now I see some of them doing this all the time. And it makes me really happy that they feel confident and comfortable now doing these things. 
But yes, there are 150 or so episodes that you can tune into, including this will be your fourth. (laughs) So one of our most popular guests. And I will say to the audience that Bruce has been an amazing friend and mentor to me as I basically bothered him for the last few years with my ceaseless questions and books and podcasts and projects. So I'm very lucky I have an amazing community that I'm going to be leaving, but I'm not actually going anywhere. I'm just not doing this anymore. (laughs) So... Well, I'm sure I speak for most, probably not all, but most scientists that it's like an absolute privilege to interact with you. It's been fantastic. I feel the exact same about you. So wonderful. Well, it was lovely to do this. It was lovely to talk about your work again. And thank you for being my last guest. Well, thank you so much, Krista, and best of luck with everything. Thank you. Thanks to Dr. Perkins for joining us on the show today. And thank you to everyone listening. Because this is my last show, I also wanted to give a special shout out to all of the amazing team members who have worked on the show with me over the years. Kim, Matt, Stephen, Tegan, Paul, Raquel, Natalie, Grace, Pilar, Denise, Sherry, Lindsay, Leah, and of course, our amazing audio editor, Stella D'Souza. Creating this podcast has been a true joy for me and I look forward to its next chapter. For more information about today's show or our podcast, email info at diabetes.ca or follow Diabetes Canada on all the social media channels at Diabetes Canada. And for one last time, thanks for listening.